You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode two. Today, we're asking the question, why do people break rules? Let's get started. Hey everyone, my name is David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, tell us about today's question. Dave, the question we're going to ask today is why do people break rules? Or maybe more specifically, why do people break safety rules at work? I think this is an important question because for a long time we've tried to manage the safety and work performance of people by prescriptively describing the way we want them to do things. There's sort of an underlying assumption that if people follow the safety rules, then they will be safe. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that's a problem, and we're not going to go into those problems really today. We want to stick to this central question of, given that there are some rules that are important, why is it that even if we make rules and people understand the rules, people do still seem to break those rules? It should be fairly obvious, I think, that in all safety-critical environments, there are endless possibilities for individual actions to influence the work outcomes. And so when we've worked out that there are particular actions that are very undesirable and we've put in place processes and rules to eliminate those actions, we need to know whether those processes and rules are going to be effective. And for that, we need to understand the reasons why people might not follow the processes and rules. And for all of the efforts we've put into safety, everything we put into leadership and culture and communication and safety awareness, it still happens that there are still safety rules and still people breaking those safety rules. So we want to get a little bit deeper into what are the reasons why that happens. So let's look into some research on this question. The study that I picked for today was performed in 2007 by Marion Isaac White of Lancaster University in the UK. The paper is titled, Catching Them At It, An Ethnography of Rule Violation. Now, while this title, Catching Them At It, sounds punitive, I think it's actually meant to be more descriptive of ethnographic research method that uh, Isaac White employed. Uh, Drew, do you want to tell us a little bit about ethnographic research? Sure. So ethnography in safety and in social science generally is very much the type of thing that you'd imagine when you imagine ethnographers studying strange peoples. We want to understand a group of people, their customs, their habits, how they live, the commonalities, the differences between those people. And we want to do that by living amongst them. So in ethnographic research, the researcher puts themselves inside the group that they want to study so that they can observe from within as much as possible. And the idea is that there's lots of stuff that goes on inside a group of people that no outsider can observe from the outside. doesn't mean that the researcher has to become part of the group but they do need to be enough inside the group that they can observe how it acts when they're by themselves uh, to understand you what's normal, not just what people say in interviews or what people answer on surveys. So in safety particularly, we use ethnographic research to understand the day-to-day practices of work rather than the formalised descriptions of work 
or the way managers conceive work and describe it to outsiders. In this particular case, Isaac White uh, was studying a large organisation that does road maintenance construction. Dave, you've done some ethnographic research yourself. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it's like to do ethnography as a researcher? Yeah, it was quite daunting, the, um, but it ended up being quite rewarding on the way through as well. The main study in my PhD on the practice of safety professionals was a longitudinal ethnography where over a six-month period I observed and interviewed safety professionals in their own work setting. The difficulty of ethnography from a research point of view is that you most often start with a completely blank sheet of paper. So on it, you're only likely to have a research question, which in my case was, what is the role of a safety professional? And in the case of this study, I imagine Isaac White was sitting there with one line on her paper that said, why do people break rules? Yeah, and that's quite different from how people sometimes imagine research as having hypotheses where we're trying to come in with an idea or a theory and do some sort of experiment or study to see whether it's true. And ethnography is not like that. Ethnography isn't testing ideas. It's not trying to prove theory. Ethnography is about uh, discovery and exploration. So we usually have a clear question. You don't go into it totally aimlessly, but you don't come into it usually with a fixed theory either. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges um, in the findings and the communication of the findings is that uh, it's impossible to separate your own ideas and beliefs as a researcher from the data that you're gathering within the study. So good ethnography or good ethnographic research will go to fairly great lengths to manage the relationship between the researcher's own opinions and biases and what's inside the data that they observe. The other challenge that we find with ethnographic research is because the sample sizes are quite small, without very well done ethnography with good descriptions of the findings, then one of the criticisms will be that it might only be applicable in that particular situation, that particular context. And I think we should be clear that some of the greatest, most famous studies in safety have essentially been ethnographies. Um, I think one of the most famous is Diane Vaughan's ethnography of the Challenger accident. Uh, that one's kind of interesting because you'd think, how, would you, how do you do an ethnography of an accident? And so she was sort of immersing herself in the organisation after the accident and also examining as an insider all of the historical records so she could make sense of what a lot of the stuff meant by spending lots of time around the people who had been there. And that's maybe one of the other drawbacks, Drew, of ethnographic research, because Diane Bourne spent 10 years to write that book, and most researchers aren't blessed with the opportunity to spend enough time to really go as deep as they'd like to with their, with their ethnographic research. Yeah, and you can spend a lot of time hanging around just waiting for things to happen. You want to, want to understand what normal work is like, well... It happens that normal work really can be quite tedious and boring and monotonous and the exciting stuff doesn't happen and the key conversations don't happen around you constantly. So in this particular research, Isaac White was particularly interested in how workers think about rules, particularly in relation to how they perceive risk. Um, so she went into the study with the idea that in the historical literature, people break rules because they don't know the rule or because they don't think there's any danger that says that they have to comply with the rule. It's like an understanding deficit. And if you take that assumption, then you say, well, okay, if we can inform people and get them to understand the risk, then they're more likely to follow the rule. So we might say, for example, that people break rules 
because of lack of risk perception, because they're not aware of the hazards, because they're careless, because they're complacent. And so, like most research, Isaac White had this historical literature and she wanted to challenge this to a certain extent. And so that's what the study was, was to try to find some deeper or better reasons than this careless and complacency. So the first part of the study was to have a number of interviews, um, mainly with senior and middle managers and with supervisors. So Dave, what's your thoughts about doing this, about asking managers and supervisors when what you're interested in is about how workers then can behave? Yeah, Drew, when we spoke about this before we got on the podcast, I was initially quite critical of this until you reminded me of the practicalities of getting access to companies and performing research. So in most situations, the managers like to have their say as part of the daily gathering exercise quite early. And given this researcher, she was new to the organization, new to the industry, new to the research question, it probably wasn't a bad place to start to get some early ideas that she could then go and test in the field. My primary concern that is, it's generally really bad research practice. And you know, for our listeners, organizational practice more broadly, to ask someone about why someone else does what they do. I think many of our listeners would be uh, familiar with the concept of workers imagined and workers done. And, you know, for those who aren't, Professor Eric Holnagel signs every email he sends off with the difference between what we can imagine and what can happen is larger than we can imagine. So my fear was that, uh, that, that, re- that Isaac White would have been sent off with some ideas that, that then she went she went out and found evidence to, to support those ideas because sometimes what you look for is what you find. It reminded me a little bit, Drew, of a conversation I had this week with a senior manager in a, in a large company. He rang me and when I asked him what the problem was, he, uh, to me, half-jokingly replied, my people keep trying to kill themselves. So to him, I replied, well, I'm not sure that's what's happening, so let's go and find out. Yeah, and as you said, David, if you go in looking for that, even if you're willing for other explanations, none of us are ever quite as open-minded as we think we are. I'm always very sceptical, not just of other people, but of myself when I catch myself saying, I'm going into this with an open mind. It's usually, you know, I think I know what's happening and I'm open enough that if you give me absolutely slam-dunk evidence that I'm wrong, I'll accept that evidence. So, yeah, we're a little bit suspicious about how this study started off. But the good thing is that it certainly didn't stop there. Yeah, that would have been a bad study. It's going to ask managers why workers break rules and report the answers in a published paper. I've seen that done and that's not the paper we're reviewing today. So following these interviews with the managers, they went out and they directly started getting interactive with the frontline workforce. Uh, that included some interviews. It in- included uh, sitting in on meetings, uh, sitting in on safety training to see what the training is like from the perspective of people attending it, uh, going to site and watching workers do activities at site, listening in on small groups and how individuals talk to the researchers or to each other. They did one of my favourite safety activities, which is sat in a car with people for a long period of time. And The conversations you have after you've been in a car for someone for half a day are so different to the conversation when you sit down either side of an interview table. So yeah, so that was the data gathering part of it. Let's move on then and look at what the findings were. Uh, There are sort of three main findings, and Dave, I'll get you to take these through these. The first one was the operative sense of self-efficacy. The second was the need for heedfulness. And the third was the idea of risk displacement. 
So David, do you want to sort of take us through each one of those? Yeah, thanks Drew. The, firstly, the operative sense of self-efficacy and what this meant was and what Isaac White found and concluded from the study was in practice, if, if workers have a strong sense of self-efficacy or self-reliance or just experience more broadly in their role and, and keeping themselves safe, then they often believe that their skills and experience are sufficient to manage the situations that they face. And that to them makes following the rules or the letter of the law in work method statements somewhat superfluous. This expertise is often accompanied with a genuine motivation to get the job done. So examples of rule violations that led to this conclusion were people working at heights without fall protection because they'd done it a lot before and they were only going to be up there for a little period of time and it would have meant stopping the work for a long period to, to get the fall protection to site. And also things like electricians uh, needing to perform tasks in pairs when the experienced electricians have been performing tasks on their own for their whole career. So Drew, do you want to talk about self-efficacy? Because it comes up a lot in safety studies. Yeah, this one really jumped out at me, particularly since we did the episode on behaviour-based safety last week. And you find the term self-efficacy pop up a lot in behaviour change as well. And there it's used almost exactly in the opposite way, that people break rules or they follow bad habits because they feel that they lack the self-efficacy to change. They don't feel that they've got enough power and influence over their own lives that they can make decisions. Um, whether that's, you know, I don't feel that I'm able to give up food. I don't feel that I'm able to give up cigarettes. I don't really think I've got enough control over my time to get enough exercise. And so I thought it was interesting that in the behavioural literature, they say, look, people need self-efficacy in order to be able to change and do the right thing. And then we have this study that suddenly says, okay, if you've got too much self-efficacy, then you're going to start making decisions about yourself that can include breaking the rules. Yeah, I found it interesting as well. And secondly, was probably a little bit more... Um obvious as a sense that it, it's probably closer to the traditional uh, research in the safety space was that there's this need for heedfulness as well as compliance. So the frontline workforce know that they need to pay attention to the situations they face and constantly make decisions about their work because they operate in very dynamic environments. And in this work context, it's this heedful approach to work that's the most important thing, not a blind following of the rules. So while some may think that workers will have all of these rules and compliance requirements they need to follow in the front of their mind, I think this study suggests that the reality might be that they're more likely to have the situation that they're facing with the work in the front of their mind and the need to follow the rules, you know, in the back of their mind. So, you know, next time we think about someone didn't follow the rules because they were being complacent or, or lacked awareness of what they were doing, we might want to rethink that and actually ask ourselves, well, maybe they were unable to follow the rules because they weren't being complacent and they were actually paying attention to the situations that they faced. Do you have a thought about this, this Drew? Because we've spoken a lot about trying to balance this need for, for compliance and, and decision-making. Yeah, so the moment you said that, David, I was thinking about an example from a company we were working with where they had a rule about doing a take-five risk assessment before they started any task. And one of the subcontractors put their hands up and said, well, do we need to do the risk assessment before we put out traffic cones? And it became evident that they had to make this choice when they sort of stopped in the middle of the road between whether they paid attention to what was around them and got the safety protections out or whether they carefully filled out a risk assessment stuck in the middle of this dangerous situation. 
And I think that's the risk when we talk too much about complacency, is what we honestly expect of workers is not total compliance. What we expect of them is a certain degree of common sense around the rules. And this isn't just safety, this is inherent to all organisations. There's a fairly famous paper from CATS in the 1960s talking about how for all organisations we rely on our workers to both be compliant and to have initiative. We need them to spontaneously do the right thing, even when it's not written down as a rule, and sometimes we need them to do what they're told. And almost by definition, we can't specify in advance when we want them to be compliant and when we want them to show initiative. We'd like them to take initiative to make that decision. Yet many of our systems and processes around compliance find it very hard to, I suppose, in hindsight, think about non-compliance in a way that could be you know, the right thing to do in a particular situation. And that might be something that we might address in a future podcast, Drew, as well. I think there's a whole, there's a whole discussion about that, that balance between compliance and, and initiative and the role of workers in the organisation and how to enable them to be able to do that. Yeah, I def- definitely want to dig up for one of our episodes, the discussion of malicious compliance and what happens when workers actually start obeying every single rule and yeah. how they then get blamed for following the rules. So the third finding that Isaac White concluded was these dangers of risk displacement. And this is probably a, a reference to the complexity of you know, real-world frontline work situations. And it refers to this individual thought process that you know, has to balance these trade-offs and different risks. So people were able to transfer certain safety risks away from the immediate situation. So one of the examples was they had to wear hearing protection when they were doing a certain task, but they were in a really busy road area. And if they wore the hearing protection, they weren't able to listen out for calls from other members of the crew and hear vehicles approaching their work area and things like that. So they had to displace this this obvious risk of, of hearing loss with this immediate need for maintaining their awareness of their situation. There are also some other blanket rules for example, the requirement to wear hard hats. Now, these were outdoor road construction workers and many of the times they were, they were performing work, there was very little above them other than the sky. And one of the tasks they needed to do quite often was to cross busy roads with cars traveling you know, at, at, at quite high speeds to, to get to their work area or lay out traffic signage. And workers reported having to run across the road, holding onto their hard hat with one hand, trying to carry a sign with the other hand and try to avoid getting hit by cars. And I think this, this situation that workers face multiple risks at any point in time means that if they've got multiple rules which contradict each other, they're going to have to make trade-offs to expose themselves to certain risks. So, yeah, I think this is genuinely a difficult thing for companies to balance. One example that springs to mind of one of the most difficult ones is whether workers should wear long sleeves to protect against skin cancer. And there's, we make that decision for ourselves in our private life. We're trading off the discomfort of long clothes, the risk of getting sunburned, the long-term risk of cancer, and the short-term inconvenience of not having clothes that are exactly suitable for what we're trying to do or the image we're trying to portray. And in our private lives, we can make those balances for ourselves, but it is difficult for organisations that feel responsible for the outcomes and may, in fact, at times be legally responsible for the outcomes Obviously, the organisation wants to have a say in that trade-off, not just leave it up to the workers. But there is a risk that the more we try to fix those situations, the more we end up having workers who are focusing on the rule rather than on the hazard. 
and they start having to manage the risk of getting caught instead of manage the risk of getting injured. And certainly once we get to that point, it's not good for safety at all. No, I, I agree. So if we, if we talk about, I think, um, trade-offs and goal conflicts and, and how we partner with and empower our workforce, we'll, we'll have many podcasts where we'll talk about studies in, in those areas because they're quite central to how we manage safety in organisations. So let's go back to this question of why people break rules. So the answer, the answer to why people break rules, according to Isaac White in this study, is that, you know, number one, workers understand the risk and believe that they can manage it in some situations without following the rule. I think number two, Workers use their own judgment to respond to the dynamic situation that they're facing, and sometimes this results in non-compliance. Or number three, they do not think that the rule is related to the safety risk that they face, or they're facing a more important safety risk, which makes following that rule a lesser priority for them. Interestingly, Isaac White compared her findings in this study to previous uh, previous study that was done by Lawton in 1998, and they had also found non-compliance across you know, four categories in, in that sense, which largely mirrored the three that Isaac White had found. They added a fourth, which was that this is a routine violation, which, was, which is a little bit more like a, a norm and a practice where people never follow this rule in any situation. So I think the interesting thing about these, these studies, and um, it appears from the way the paper was written that Isaac White went back to the literature after she'd formed her conclusions to try to look for existing theory that could match to. And you know, different studies that, uh, that came up with very similar themes. So I think from our listeners' perspective, you can take some of these ideas away and, and you can start to get a sense of whether they're true within your own organisation or they could be at play in your own organisations. So, so, Drew, there's a question of, you know, should we be doing this kind of research focusing on breaking rules when it's something that we don't necessarily want to have in our organisations and, uh, and to, to sit by and accept that it happens and to research it? Should we be... Should we be accepting that and doing research on it? Well, I certainly think there are a lot of safety academics who don't even like that construction of thinking about safety in terms of rule or thinking about unsafety in terms of rule breaking. I think it is important as safety practitioners and as researchers that we have some clear answers we can give back to management when management see what they at least think of and describe as rule breaking. If that's the problem that people are coming to us with, then having an answer that says, sorry, that's the wrong question, is not a particularly appropriate or helpful answer. And I think these sorts of studies, they all give slightly different nuanced explanations, but they do have some repeated themes that do provide really quite useful answers. Even if we stick with the language of why do people break rules, we can say, look, there are three big reasons here. And only one of them has to do with the people. So sure, one of the reasons can be because of people's knowledge of and attitude towards the rules. But probably a much bigger set of explanations comes from understanding the situations. That it's in fact, the problem is not the people breaking the rules. The problem is the rules that people are breaking and that we need to look at that as something to fix. And then there's this third category in the middle, which is people trying to navigate difficult complex situations. So in two out of the three, trying to fix the problem doesn't involve trying to fix the people. It involves looking at what are the rules, how do they interact, what sorts of situations, trade-offs are people trying to cope with. And I think, Drew, as we as we move in, it's a great segue into the implications for practice. And and if we move into that, I think even in that one which which might be easy to 
to conclude that it's about the people is many of those rules that people are maybe taking an alternative way of working may not be any less less risky or any different you know and, and it may not be all the rules that the organization has that uh that uh need to be dealt with by by helping the person comply more and the the first practical suggestion that i had and the practical takeaway i had for our listeners on this is um how much co-design goes into the creation of rules and processes in the organization how much how much say do the people have who are expected to follow the rules have in what those rules look like and what context they're they're meant to to, to comply in and and do organizations make any effort to have any kind of social contract between the managers and and the safety professionals and and the workers you know and their and their contractors in the organization in um in understanding the creation and the application of rules within their organization you know that'd be one thing that I'd really think about you know how does rule making occur it's the first thing that happens in grade one classrooms in primary school is they get the kids to sit down and make a set of rules for the classroom. And it's the basic knowledge that rules that people come up with themselves that they decide for themselves are important are going to be far more effective as a social agreement about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And it may be that if you give people the freedom to do that, the rules they come up with would not be exactly what you do yourself. And that is challenging. If you give people freedom, sometimes you're not going to like where they take that freedom. But I would much rather have eight rules that people agree with and think are the right rules than 10 rules I've written myself where they follow none of them. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think the second practical takeaway for people is, is you know, I think we need to look for opportunities given the, the increasing complexity and, and, well, basically just the complexity of our our workplaces and our work activities and you know, finding ways to use principles and frameworks as opposed to specific compliance requirements could allow the ability for people to make decisions in certain situations that doesn't result in non-compliance. It's just an application of a principle in the way that it's intended to be applied. And I'm thinking about that example that you gave us about take fives in a dangerous situation. Having a rule that says do a take five before every task is very different towards people telling people to do a risk assessment you know, and, and having a framework where if they're, they're in a dynamic and risky situation, that's a very simple mental risk assessment of, of doing the initial setup for the work. And if they've got the time and space, it might involve a, a more complete team-based or checklist-based assessment. But principles and frameworks, I think, have been underutilized in, in the frontline workplace in relation to safety. I think the, the third one, if we think about the co-design of rules and then the use of principles and frameworks, the third takeaway to me would be you know, this production and safety conflict and making it hard to comply. Like the example I gave of for someone to follow the rules and have the fall arrest equipment might have resulted in an extra half a day or a full day of time lost in getting the job done. And we know that that making sacrifice judgments for safety are far easier to make and compliance can be far, far easier if there's not a big production um, and cost conflict within the organisation. So I really think we'll, we will discuss trade-offs and, and goal conflict in, in future podcasts and we'll bring some specific research on it. But that's really important, I think, because this study's showing that, you know, if compliance is difficult, then compliance may not may not uh, may not happen as as the organization might want it to. So I think that's a good set of takeaways, David. And I just want to emphasize on that last one that often we hear about this idea of a conflict between production and safety. And we think the thing to do is to put our thumbs on the side of the scale of safety 
And really, if you imagine it literally like a set of scales, there's massive pressure on one hand, which is production. And if we put the pressure down on safety, then workers just get totally squeezed in the middle. It's not that the balance comes to safety, it's that the workers are irreconcilably pulled between these two massive competing forces. And I think it means when the snap does happen, the snap's bigger. Either the yeah. production snap or the safety snap becomes, becomes bigger. And I think there's, a, there's also a good takeaway here for, for those of our listeners who are safety practitioners in, uh, in the research method, the ethnographic research method here and, and, and this idea of a blank piece of paper. So the next time in your organization when there's an incident of non-compliance or a rules broken, lots of people in your organization are going to be quick to jump to explanations and judgments about why that non-compliance occurred. And you can be the one with the blank piece of paper and say, you know, I'm not sure it is because they don't care about safety and I'm not sure it is because they're, they're complacent about their work. And I think we should actually go and, go and find, out the, find out the answer in a non-judgmental kind of way. And I think, Drew, we had this debate because I think safety managers should be ethnographers pretty much all of the time. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. I, I think that is one of the real value that safety personnel can add to an organisation is they're in this role that they're not, they may be operating on behalf of management a lot of the time, but they're also operating on behalf of the worker. And so being stuck in that middle space can be at times incredibly complex and challenging and frustrating, but it also give the opportunity to have that role as the outsider who is also an insider, the person who can listen to the stories that everyone tells and be the fly on the wall and gather that information and then put that information to work in the service of both safety and the interests of the broader organisation. So that's it for this week. Our question for this week was, why do people break rules? And the short answer is because of their own sense of self-efficacy, their need to balance heedfulness as well as compliance and the dangers of risk displacement. So we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 